0: All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Joel, chapter number two. In Joel, chapter number two, we continue our Sunday school lesson going through the book of Joel. And if you find the book of Daniel, go forward through the book of Hosea, and right after the book of Hosea is the book of Joel, chapter number two. Last week we looked at really the first chapter and uh, the idea, and as I mentioned before, uh, that that prophecy. I'll explain this about prophecy. I said it last week, but I'll say it again. Uh, that prophecy oftentimes uh, can be difficult to understand. To be honest with you, uh, and 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 I'll explain it as this: If if this pulpit represents the time when Jesus Christ was born on Earth, and, and even we'll say his birth and his death, we live way over here. And we're looking back at those events and we read the scripture and we understand, oh look, that points to the Christ's birth. Well, we know Christ was born in Bethlehem. We know Christ died on Calvary, on the cross of Calvary, and there's many prophetic passages in the Old Testament that when we read them, we look back at the events and we say, well that's definitely really clear because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Jesus did die on the cross of Calvary. Uh, Jesus didn't open his mouth. Isaiah 53 talks about him not opening his mouth and him being uh, slain as a lamb. Uh, And and it talks about all of those things. And we look back and we say, well, it's obvious that is Jesus Christ. But if you lived on this side before Jesus Christ was born, before Jesus died on the cross, and you're reading it, you may not understand. You probably would not understand and wouldn't realize, well, that's a prophetic portion pointing to the birth and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, the majority of the Jews, as they read those Old Testament passages, and even the disciples, they didn't understand those prophecies pointed to Jesus Christ. And many of them were looking for Jesus to set up his kingdom. That's why they were so confused. Now I say that to say this when we read the Book of Joel and we read prophecies of, of, of Old Testament and even of New Testament, sometimes there are references to things pointing in the future that that have yet to happen in our lifetime. They have not taken place. For example the rapture of Jesus Christ, the millennial reign, the end times. So we read those things and we're looking forward and it is difficult for us to exactly say, well this references that and this references this because we don't know we have not lived past those times we're not looking back but we're looking forward and in the book of Joel and in the book of Daniel and many of the prophets there is there's dual prophecy so one passage may refer to something that that took place but it may refer as well to something else that is going to take place in the future. And so many times prophecy is uh, really impressive the way it is written. And and let me just say it this way, uh, that really only God could orchestrate something that organized. Uh, we really couldn't. And, uh, and so as we study it, may we marvel at how wonderful God is at orchestrating his written word and coordinating it with the events that have taken place in the past and the events that are going to take place in the future. And I say all of that to say this, that sometimes there are some things uh, that we might we might run over uh, or we might not see that refer to end times that we might not always uh, pull out all of those references. And then sometimes we'll look at things, and we, just like the disciples or just like the Jews, may get some stuff wrong um, because listen, it's sometimes it is tough to understand. All of those things, and so I just want us to understand that uh, as we look at the prophecy in the book of Joel. Now, I'm looking at it for a couple reasons. I think it's very profitable, even for us today. We saw in chapter one uh, the the tragedy that had taken place, and uh, and and the the pestilence and the famine that was going to result from that. And and really, we see that uh, God was calling the the uh, people to whom He was prophesying, I believe southern Israel, uh, was, was calling them to be sorrowful for their sins. And we saw that in chapter 1. And as we look in chapter 2, we are going to see some interesting things. And, uh, and we're really going to look at the idea of what is God trying to accomplish in the judgment That he sends. And not just this judgment, but in all judgments that God sends. I mean, you look back through history, and there are plenty of events where clearly in the Bible God proclaimed, hey, this is judgment. Uh, The flood, the worldwide flood that took place, that was God's judgment on the world for the wickedness that had taken place. Sodom and Gomorrah, that was God's judgment on that place for the wickedness that had taken place. The fall of Israel, when the Babylonians came in and took over, and the Assyrians came over and took over uh, Israel. That was God's judgment where he lifted his hand of protection from Israel and allowed her enemies to come in and capture and take over. Over Israel, that was God's judgment on Israel, and so we're going to look at these ideas and say, "What is God's point of judgment? What is God trying to accomplish?" And I believe we can see it very clearly in in uh, in Joel chapter number two. So look with me in Joel chapter number two. Hopefully, I've given you enough time to find it there. It is one of the smaller books of the of the Old Testament, the prophetic books, with just three chapters. We find here in Joel chapter number two, in verse number one, the Bible says this, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, and it is nigh at hand. "...the day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations." A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness." And they shall run like mighty men, and they shall climb the walls like the men of war, and they shall march on every one his ways, and they shall not break their ranks, neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. That's a pretty amazing verse right there. Verse 9, they shall run to and fro in the city, and they shall run upon the wall, and they shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in the, at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining, and the Lord shall utter his voice Before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And let's just stop right there and uh, let's have a word of prayer before we get into our lesson this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in your house around your word. Thank you for the liberty that we have, Father, to be able to gather around your word. And God, I pray that you'd use me. I pray that you'd speak through me. Father, may we see uh, at least one major point that is, that is brought out in this chapter. And God, I pray that you would help us uh, as we look at these. And God, help us to see uh, your purpose in judgment. And Father, we'll be careful to give you the honor and glory for all that's said and done. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we look at this uh, verse, this the, we read that portion, and the first 11 verses really are dedicated uh, to the ruin from judgment. We're not going to go through every verse, uh, well I, I might, but we'll just kind of comment very briefly uh, on the extent of the ruin, and we can see the ruin from this judgment that is coming, and it's quite interesting, uh, you look there in verse number 1, and he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all All the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, and it is nigh at hand. And so one of the things that we can see clearly, at least in verse number 1, is that there is a pending judgment from God that is coming. Now that was relevant to them in their time. And hey, I'm saying to you now, it is just as relevant in our time that there is still a pending judgment from God that is coming to this world. And so uh, we can see that here. He was saying, listen, the time is nigh. And, uh, and they were to be aware uh, of what was going on. And they were to sound the alarm and let the people know, hey, listen, there is a judgment from God that is going to arrive here. And, uh, and while we're thinking about that, save your spot here in Joel. Um, and, and mark it there. Put a piece of paper or something. And go with me to 2 Timothy. I want us to see these two passages and how certainly applicable this is to us today. Second Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 5. And so there was a warning given to Israel and they were saying, hey, there is judgment, it's coming. and The day of the Lord is coming and there's going to be uh, difficulty in our land. So 2 Timothy chapter number 3, and look with me there in verse number 1. And we can see that it was not just a warning for them, but it is clearly a warning for us in just as much as this. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 1, we see this. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. In verse number five, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Now he's giving a, 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 a... a list here, and we're not going to go through this list, but he starts it off in verse number one. This, know that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And he goes on this list and this rampage, and boy, you could underline them and you, we could go through them. And we could easily point to how that defines the society in which we live today. I mean, very clearly. I mean, it's obvious uh, and it's very clear. Uh, it says there that that uh, in verse number four, that men shall be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I don't know that there's ever been a day uh, that, 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 well, actually there probably was back in Rome. I've heard that often compared to, but a day when uh, people will gather by the thousands to watch men play a sport. You can't go hardly gather a hundred people in a church to worship God and read from God's Word. I think that's lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And I'm talking about society on a whole. And that's where our society is at. Uh, I mean, they will, and not only that, bless God, they will pay more money than they'll drop in the offering plate. I'm just saying and, and boy, they will buy their team apparel, and they'll, and it's not wrong to go to a sporting event. Understand, I'm not saying that. It's not wrong to buy team sporting apparel and things of that nature. But what it points to is that our society on a whole far loves sports and far loves pleasure way more than it loves God. And it's, it points to the fact that, hey, we are living in the last days. What about the last verse? That, that, that verse always bothers me. Verse number five, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Boy, we have a, we have a very religious society. We really do. People are, well, I'm religious and, and they, uh, they profess to believe in God or they'll believe in other things and it is a religious and it's some form of godliness, but boy, it's totally denying the power of God in their lives. And so you don't have to be, uh, you, can, you can figure out pretty easily that, hey, this is pointing to our day and time and our society. And it starts out by saying, in the last days perilous times shall come. Go with me to one other passage real quick, Second Peter chapter 3. And this parallels and really echoes what we just read in Second in Timothy. Uh, and you might want to jot those down with that, that. That, hey, they really go together. Second Peter, chapter number 3. Just forward a few few pages. After the T's, you'll hit the book of Hebrews. And after the book of Hebrews, you'll find uh, James and then uh, the, the book of, of Peter. Second Peter, chapter number 3, in verse number 3. And he's also going to give us a warning of last days. And he's going to explain what those are. He says here in 2 Peter chapter number 3, in verse number 3. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. Walking after their own lusts. Boy, that almost describes what we saw in 2 Timothy. Uh, Really people that are just following what they want to do. Verse number 4. And saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, and by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water in the water. Verse number 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heaven and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so he's saying, listen, there is going to be a last days and people are going to openly mock and they're going to say creation. And he said they're going to deny that. They're willingly ignorant of creation. They're willingly ignorant of a worldwide flood. And people in the scientific communities will downplay and will tell you there was no such thing of a worldwide flood. It was not possible. Scientifically, there's not enough water to cover the entire world. And they will tell you all the reasons why it cannot take place. And they will be willingly ignorant of the word of God. They want to. Go against what God has said. They don't want to follow that. And so they're willingly ignorant of those things. And they will even mock at those things. And they will mock, well, you know, if the Bible's true, then Jesus would have come back already. And and they will mock at those things because they want to be ignorant of those things. And the Bible is very clear in verse 3. He says this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. And I'm just saying this, that there is certainly a parallel between Joel chapter number two and verse number one. Blow ye the trumpet in in Zion and sound an alarm in in my holy mountain and let all the inhabitants of of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. And I'm just telling you that, hey, we very well could be in the last days. I don't know. I'm not saying uh, that that he's going to come tomorrow, but I'm saying he certainly could. I'm not saying that, that it'll happen next month, but he certainly could. There's absolutely nothing stopping the coming of the Lord and the rapture from taking place. And what I'm saying is, hey, we need to be prepared. There is a judgment of God that is coming we need to be aware of that. Hey, not only that, but we need to sound the alarm to the lost and dying worlds that are the lost and dying people that are out there uh, because there is a time of judgment and everything that God says in his word is going to come to pass. And I know it has not all come to pass yet, but hey, there's a lot of future judgment that God talks about and it's there. And so, uh, we see the time of ruin and it is nigh at hand. Look at the trembling of the ruin. He says there in the, the second or the, towards the last phrase of, of Joel 2 1. He says, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. They ought to be fearful for the, uh, for the, um, judgment of God that is to come. Not only that, but the, uh, not only the time of ruin, the trembling of ruin, and the terribleness of ruin. Verses 2 all the way down through 11, he describes what an incredible amount of, of things that are going to take place. Now I won't say that, uh, here's the funny thing about prophecy, and I'll just stop here for a moment. Sometimes... Uh, A lot of times actually in verse 1 that will refer to future events but verses 2 down through 11 do not necessarily, they might refer to a future event that's going to take place but it may not be dual meaning and end up following through all the way to the end, okay? There's a lot of verses that show up are prophetic towards Jesus Christ, but not the whole passage is prophetic pointing to Jesus Christ. Isaiah uh, 9, 6 and Micah 5, 2 and a lot of the prophecies that we look at that point to the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, it's just one phrase really that refers to Jesus Christ and where he's going to be born and the rest of the passage does not necessarily line up or fit with that, all right? So uh, so verses 2 down through. Through, we see the terribleness of the ruin. Um, look at verse number two. We won't, we won't read these. I'm just going to give you these as a list for, st- for sake of time. But in verse two, we see the abundance of the ruin. He says, there's, there's, uh, it's never been the like and neither shall be any more after it. Uh, What a horrible destruction. In verse 3, there's an abolishing. He says there in verse 3, in the middle of the phrase, he says, uh, The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. In other words, hey, it's a beautiful land before them, but after this has gone through, it is absolutely decimated. It's abolished. It is scorched earth. There is nothing left behind them. It's an abolishing. Verse number four, they talks about their appearance and how they're a fierce army uh, that that is scary. Uh, Verse five, it talks about the audibleness and the incessant sound of destruction. Could you imagine, uh, boy, sometimes you don't realize how sounds really affect you. Uh, but, but sounds of destruction and the way uh, a raging fire would devour something. And, and if you've ever been around a, a big fire, uh, man, that sound may give you fear in the future. Uh, if you've been around some traumatic experience that involves sound, uh, maybe an auto accident, just the screeching of tires says, makes your spine shiver because it automatically draws to remembrance something terrible that has taken place and it talks about the sound and how horrible it's going to be. Uh, the abhorrence in verse number six. It talks about that that uh, their faces uh, are are going to be much pained. It's talking about you wince when you see something because you're like, man, that's just terrible, and uh, and so you can see that you see the uh, the actions in verse number seven. He they're unstoppable. And they're indestructible. It's amazing. In verse number 7, they're just going to continue to go forward. They're going to climb walls. They're going to uh, continue marching forward. Nobody's going to break their ranks. Verse number 8, it's kind of amazing. The last phrase says, and when they shall fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. In other words, hey, they're, they're going to just keep marching forward. Man, what a, what a, what a terrible uh, amount of, of destruction that's going to take place. In verse number 11, I don't want you to miss this. I believe this is important. But he says there in verse number 11, And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, For he is strong that executeth his word, and the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? You say, whose army is it? It's God's army. You see the authority of it in verse number 11. It's God's army. Now, there are those who uh, look at it and they'll say, well, that is uh, all of it that it's talking about is the locust that it talked about in verse number one. There may have been an event. There probably has been a couple of events where locusts have come through and have devoured it. And their ranks keep marching forward. And and certainly uh, you might kill one locust, but the next one's coming right behind it and it's going to fill in the gap and they are going to absolutely decimate everything. So that could have been an event that took place. But there's undeniably, it refers as well to an army of people that are going to come forth and are going to conquer. Maybe it's referring to when the, uh, the Babylonians had overtaken Israel. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's referring to end times when God's army is going to come and take over the earth. I mean, it certainly is God's army in, chapter, in verse number 11. And so there's many things that you could point that to, uh, but I'm just saying this, uh, that all of that is there and the destruction and the ruin that takes place is, is, is terrible, to be honest with you. And you read it and you say, man, that's amazing. Now I want you to notice this. We're going to go back to verse 1. We see the time of ruin, the trembling, and the terribleness of the ruin. But I want you to see the trumpet before the ruin in verse number 1. He says, blow ye the trumpet in Zion. And there is an alarm that needs to be ringing out. And he says that, you know, a trumpet is used for many things. Uh, my dad would, uh, every, at family camp, when we'd go to family camp, um, which was really, it was uh, the week of July 4th, and it was honoring God and country, and it was a wonderful uh, week. And, and my dad, every, every day, uh, he would play uh, Reveille. And uh, man, if you've ever heard Reveille, it's just kind of like, boom, let's go. I mean, it, it, just, it just sets you on, 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 on ready to move and ready to, to work and ready to do something because that's just the way it's played. That's, that's what it's intended to do. It's intended to wake you up. Then every night at sunset, he would play taps. Man, I love taps. It just kind of says, hey, it's time to relax. You can let your guard down. The nights come. It's time to relax. It's time to pillow your head. It's time to uh, be done with all the day's events. And the trumpet is quite an amazing instrument. And it's been used historically for many things throughout the years. And one of the things that it has been used for is to sound an alarm. And Reveille is kind of that idea of rousing the troops and gathering, sometimes uh, armies would use it uh, to, as a rallying point. They would blow their trumpet and they would rally their troops to a certain particular place. I mean, if you think about it, before radio communication existed, that was the best way to rally troops. Uh, and none of your enemies would know what your uh, blasts would stand for, but your troops, who would listen to them every day, would know automatically and instinctively, hey, that's the, that's the sound that we're supposed to gather over there, or that's the sound that we are supposed to go forth and attack, or that's the sound that we're supposed to fall back and, uh, and back off from the enemy. And they would know that from the sound of the trumpet. And that trumpet was very instrumental. And in this verse we find, he says, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, and for it is nigh at hand one of the things that I want us to see, at least out of verse 1, if nothing else, is that, hey, we as saved individuals are to be sounding an alarm to the lost who know not Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that there is a day of judgment coming. And we ought to sound that alarm. Because there's a terrible ruin that's going to take place at the judgment of God. Not only that, but I want you here's where the crooks of the message and the crooks of this chapter. Look with me, in verses one through eleven, we can see the ruin from judgment. But verses 12, uh, well, verse number twelve, we really see the repentance in judgment. Look with me in verse number 12. He says there in verse number 12, "Therefore also know, therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me." with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. One of the things that I believe the the function of judgment, or maybe more so the function of the alarm of judgment, is to give opportunity for those people to turn and not have that judgment come in their life. That's one of the purposes of that call uh, and of that alarm. And we see the call to repentance here. Uh, Look at what he says in verse number 13. He says, And rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful... Slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. and Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. And in verse 12, there's certainly a call to repentance. What is repentance? It is sorrow for sin, and it is a turning. It's saying, listen, uh, God is saying, listen, if you continue this direction in your life, there is a pending judgment, there is destruction at the end of that road. And if you keep going in that direction, hey, you're going you're gonna to hit the end, my friend. And repentance is simply saying, man, I recognize the direction I'm going is wrong. I recognize the things that I'm doing in my life are not right. And I don't want to continue down this path until the judgment of God comes. Therefore, I want to turn. And it's a desire to to get away from that. Now, people are always like, well, then you have to clean up your life before you get saved. No, that's not what it is. It is a heart's desire and a heart's turn that says, I don't want that. We're not able to clean up our own lives. But if we do recognize our wrong, and if we do recognize our sin, and if we do say, God, I don't want that in my life, he'll help us to change our life and to fix those things that are not right. And that's where repentance comes into play. And God uh, does not want the destruction of people. God doesn't want people to go to the end of that road and hit destruction. God is not interested in in, in that. Uh, back in in, uh, in in Peter that we read, I didn't put it in my notes, but uh, back in, in, in Peter that we read, it says, in, if you were to continue reading the text down there in verse number 9, 2 Peter, Peter chapter 3 in verse number 9, it says this, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count, count slackness, but is longsuffering to usward, not willing that Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God desires man not to be judged and to be cut off and to face persecution or punishment, rather, for what he has done, but God desires for mankind to turn back to God. That's what he's saying here in this verse. Many times people look at Christians, they say, well, they only, you know, they only preach damnation and hell. And listen, God doesn't want damnation and hell for anyone. But if you continue, ignorant, willingly ignorant of God or ignorant of God, then it will come. And he's saying, listen, now is the opportunity to turn. He says that in verse number 12, therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye, even to me, with all your heart. And he says, listen, turn to God. Some people, I've dealt with a lot of people over the years, especially in Peru, and many people would, would repent. And they'd say, okay, I recognize this is the wrong direction, so they would repent to good works. they say, well, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to start doing good works that's going to make up for my bad works. Nowhere in Scripture is thats that, is that clarified as being saved. There's, there's. We know that it's not our good works. Some people will, will repent and they will become religious or, or join some kind of, of religious institution or uh, some sort of works type thing and, and that as well. Uh, the Bible is very clear. God says repent and turn to who? To the Lord God. Turn to Him. He is the only one that can change your life. He is the only one that can make right your wrongs. He is the only one that can do that. And so we see the, uh, the, the season of the call. It's now. We see the sovereignty of the call. And that's the Lord. That we're to turn to the Lord. And then we see the sincerity of the call. Look at what he says there. He says in verse number 14. Was it verse 14? No, it's uh, verse 12. Let's start in verse 12. I'll find it. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me, right there in verse number 12, with all your heart. And he says in verse number 13, and rend your heart, not your garments. Why does he say that? Well, in Jewish times and Bible times, it was custom for them when they were upset, they would rip their clothes it they, they they was a sign of showing, hey, I'm, I'm in remorse, I'm in, uh, I'm in sorrow, I'm in a sorrowful state. And so Jesus, or God rather, is saying, listen, it's not just an outwardly thing. He says, rend your heart, that would be rip your heart, allow your heart to be broken for your own sin. And he says, not just the garment. Don't, don't worry about the outward. Make sure that inward is taken care of. Make sure it is a sincere repentance with your whole heart. And, uh, and we can see the, uh, the call to repentance there in verses 12 through 13. And then, not only that, but I want to touch on this. In verse number 12, he says, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye everyone to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping, and with mourning. What is fasting? Fasting, we, it's, it's throughout the Bible, but it is abstaining from food. It's saying, you know what, I'm not going to eat or drink. And oftentimes, now you need food. Food is a necessary thing uh, if you want to continue living. Uh, but, but what you are saying in fasting is saying, I am so serious about this matter, whatever the matter may be. I am, this is so important to me that I'm going to abstain from eating regular meals. I'm not going to eat breakfast. I'm not going to eat lunch. I'm not going to eat dinner. And, and, and I'm not going to snack. And I'm going to take that time and I'm going to go to God in prayer instead of if eating food. And it's a showing of how serious you are about a matter. Do you remember when Jonah went to Nineveh and and he preached there and uh, and Nineveh repented. You remember that. And Nineveh proclaimed a fast. They said, that. matter of fact, the mayor or the king or whoever was in charge of that city said, hey, nobody in this town is going to eat. We're all going to fast. This is a serious matter. The destruction of God is coming to this place and we've got to get serious about this. We are all going to fast. And it goes a step further And he says, we're not even going to feed our animals. That's how serious they were. You say, "Well, well, what happened? Well, you know the story. The entire God spared the entire town of Nineveh because they were serious. And they said, you know what? We're going to fast. We're going to repent. We're going to remorse. We're going to pray. We're going to ask for God's blessing on this. And God certainly calls us to repentance. And there's a consequence for repentance. And that is, hey, that God is waiting there, arms open. God wants people to repent. He's, he's looking for people to turn away from their sin and come running to God. But so often people are so stubborn that they don't do it. And they don't want to repent. And then there's the place of repentance. Boy, we don't even have time to get in there. Look with me in verse number 15. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck breasts, let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. And he's saying, listen, bring everybody and there was a place that they were to assemble and that was uh, in God's house in that day. And listen, it's just as much today that, hey, people that are serious ought to be gathering at God's house for the sins of our nation. We see that in chapter 1, the sorrow, but there is a call to repentance and there's a, a place to gather. We see the repentance and judgment. Lastly, We're not even going to have time to look at this, but I'll give it to you real quick. And uh, verses 18 all the way down through 32, you know what you can see? You can see the restoration after judgment. And that's where God blesses incredibly. Boy, what a blessing of God to know that, hey, if you turn and you go to God, many people think, well, the... You know Christians, they don't have any fun, and uh, boy, they just want it. They uh, it's a bunch of do's and or do-nots, and do not don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, and don't do that. Listen, there's a whole restoration portion of this chapter that we don't have time to get into. Verse number 18, uh, you see the pity of of restoration, and verses 19, you see the prosperity of restoration, where God restores His people. And verse 20, you can see the peace, and uh, you can see the provision in 20 and 21, the pleasure in verse 23 look with me in 23 he says be glad then ye children of Zion rejoice in the Lord your God well he was preaching damnation and destruction in the first few verses and then he calls him to repentance and now he's saying hey rejoice be glad have joy in your heart because God wants to restore the joy remember the psalmist when he prayed when he had sinned against God David when he had sinned against God he said God restore unto me the joy of my salvation Sin will steal that, it will take it away, but hey, returning to God, repenting, and turning back to God will restore the joy. You see the joy, uh, the, the pleasure in, in the restoration. You see the, the piety in verse number 27. You can see the, uh, the, the, the godliness. God wants his people to live right. You can see the prestige, and then you can see, look with me at verse 28 down through 32. We'll just read them, I don't have time. But you can certainly see the prophecy. That is taking place. He says in verse number 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. That's when the Spirit of God comes down to this earth. Hey, and He dwells with you as a believer. What a blessing. You can see that here. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show you wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and and fire and the pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon in to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Boy, there's so much prophecy there. Just those few verses that points to end times. Hey, that the sun will go black and that the moon will turn to blood red. It talks about that in the book of Revelation. It talks about that in the book of Peter. We're talking about end times after our lifetime that, hey, it was even in the book of Joel. It's pointing forward all the way to that and coming events. And I would just remind us of verse number one. Blow ye a trumpet. Sound the alarm. Because, hey, you know, we're born again. We're saved and, and I don't want you to be fearful of pending judgment. We know that, hey, when, when the trump of God sounds, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, at the last trump, we're going to be called out of here. Hey, we're, we're, not, we're not destined for all of that destruction. He's going to call us out of here as saved individuals. And I'm glad we won't be part of that. He spares us from that. But we need to warn other people. Because there's lots of people that are going to go through that destruction. What a terrible day that's going to be for them. What a terrible time for them. We need to warn them, hey, they need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ because he alone is the only one that can save them and change their life. With every head bowed and every eye closed as we stand to our feet. He says in verse 1, blow ye the trumpet... Sound an alarm. Let people know, for the day of the Lord cometh. It is at nigh. It is nigh at hand. Father, thank you for the great, great salvation that you've given to us. God, we're grateful that we know we're saved. God, what a blessing to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that when we die, we'll spend eternity with you. If you come back, we're going to be raptured out of here. God, we know that not based on our works, not based on our merit, but based on our faith in Jesus Christ as our own personal Savior. Based on your word that you said, God, that whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Almost given word for word in Joel. That whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be delivered. What a great salvation we have. But God, though we enjoy our salvation, may we be concerned for those around us who are not saved. God, those that are destined for that judgment. God, what a terrible day that's going to be. We see the army, we see uh, how they'll not be defeated. We see how the destruction is going to take place. And, And God, that's certainly written throughout your word as a warning to those who would not put their faith and trust in you. God, may we be concerned about the lost. May we reach the lost. And God, if there's one here that does not know you as their personal Savior, God, I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you today. And simply in childlike faith, call out to you and ask you to save them. Father, we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. As we have a short hymn of invitation, if God's spoken to your heart, the altar's open. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, well, I've never put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You can. You can do that. You can do that right there in your seat. You can do that. Maybe you're listening online and you say, man, I want to do that. Listen, just call on the Lord and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. God, save me. I put my full trust in you. Forgive me of my sin and save me, and he'll do that. He's promised he would. He wants to save you. That's why he came. That's why he died on the cross of Calvary. We as believers, we've got to warn other people. Let them know that God loves them. Let them know that God wants to see them saved. bring our invitation to a close. Again, I appreciate your attention and your attendance and uh, you got a couple minutes here uh, between Sunday school and church and you can hit the bathrooms or get a drink of water or get the kids to the junior church, But, uh, but stop and smile at somebody and tell them you're glad to see them here this morning. God bless.